Like me, you've probably been watching Peter Jackson's new Beatles documentary series, Get Back, on Disney+. I wanted to do a brief episode this week just touching on some of the fascinating things about this series, some of the frustrating things about this series, and my overall impressions after having watched all three episodes and all six hours. Before we get into that, I want to just touch on a couple of books I took off the shelf in preparation for this episode, in case you're interested in going a little further into the Beatle wormhole. Without a doubt, the best Beatles book I've ever read is called You Never Give Me Your Money by Peter Doggett. This chronicles the business trouble of the Beatles post-breakup, and it stretches back through their origins and all of the moments covered in the Get Back project. What it does especially well is it approaches a totemic, mythological, monstrous subject like the Beatles from the side. And the side approach is that of a business book and what went wrong with the finances, what was behind their legal battles. It gets at several essential and sometimes uncomfortable truths about all the Beatles. But in doing so, it's very balanced, and it gives and takes from each of the Beatles and major players. It's an essential book. The other book I took down off the shelf was The Beatles by Bob Spitz. Up to a few years ago, this was the most recent and most complete Beatle biography out there. But rereading some of the relevant portions for this podcast, I did see more evidence than I first did of one of the major criticisms of the book, which is that Spitz editorializes a bit too much and is perhaps too obviously disapproving of the Lennon-Ono relationship and as such kind of fails to properly put things in their context. So I would still say it's a very complete, very well-researched Beatles biography, but one that is perhaps a better overall Beatles bio is called Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles in Britain and America by Jonathan Gould. This is widely regarded as probably the best existing book about the Beatles to date. It places them in a cultural context as well as a biographical one. So pick your major bio of the Beatles at will, but also read You Never Give Me Your Money, and you'll have a very good handle on the Beatle basics, and you'll understand what the flashpoints are and a lot of the subtext and context of the Get Back series, which isn't really hit upon in the series itself. And we'll talk about why that is plus and minus as we go further in the episode. Hello. See these little fellas? They're the Beatles. Inflatable Beatles. They're yours, the four of them, for just two dollars and two wrappers from Dove or Lux or Lightboy. So you'll find the Beatles at your supermarket in this display. Here's uh, John, Ringo, George, and Paul. Uh, for full details, visit this display at your supermarket and have the Beatles, all, all four of them, for your very own. I think you can skip a sensational and exploitative biography like the infamous Albert Goldman Lennon biography. I have read it. It is full of very compelling, very salacious details. You'll need a shower after you read it. Uh, if you do read it, I suggest reading it in context with one of these other books because it's going to give you probably some essential pieces of the puzzle. It's going to go a little bit deeper into some of the darker chapters of Lennon's life with Yoko uh, prior to his death. And I think the veracity of the book is spotty, but is also well-sourced in places. So it's not easily dismissed, but it's also perhaps a bit more of a takedown than a true biographical contextualization of a guy as complicated as John Lennon. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this project. The reason this came about was because a few years ago, Peter Jackson did a very well-regarded and brilliant documentary film called They Shall Not Grow Old, which used groundbreaking film restoration techniques to bring to life incredible footage from World War I. And this technique allowed the Beatles to think of redoing the original Let It Be documentary film, which is most well-known for the famous Apple rooftop concert. One of the things Jackson's film does really well is kind of present that anew, and you're amazed anew at something that, if you're my age, I was born in 1969, right around the events of the Let It Be sessions, you know, that thing has always existed. That's always been a piece of pop culture. Seeing it again, it's, it's thrilling and enthralling now to have seen what led up to it. Uh, in Peter Jackson's version. So Peter Jackson got into the archival material that was shot uh, during the original Let It Be project, which was a documentary film project and a live concert conceived by Paul and directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg. Much more on him later. I know you have thoughts. I have them too. Basically, the idea was after the studio overdub technologically intensive albums of Sgt. Pepper's and the White Album, the Beatles wanted to get back to basics as a rock and roll band. They wanted four guys in a room playing their instruments. They wanted the tracks to be recorded live, no overdubs. And this was the challenge they set for themselves. They were going to film the actual songwriting process taking place in real time, which was different than the way Beatles sessions had worked in the past, where Paul and or John, and to a lesser extent, George, were bringing in fully formed songs and then having the rest of the Beatles perform them. So the way that the original production was set up, there were two 16 millimeter cameras who were recording about three or four hours of film per day during the roughly 30 day window that the Beatles had set for the recording of this album and the performance of the live concert. They also had two Nagro recording devices present and those were able to record really in real time throughout the entirety of the studio day. So those Nagras were recording six to eight hours of audio per day times two. Two 16 millimeter cameras recording three to four hours of film today. Ultimately, we ended up with 150 hours of audio recordings and 60 hours of film footage. Now, the original film directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg is kind of one of those infamous uh, projects that it doesn't sound like anyone was really happy with, maybe outside Michael Lindsay Hogg. I'd be interested to know what the business of Get Back was in addressing him, because he's been pretty absent from the discussion of the Peter Jackson version, other than a couple of articles, one I saw from Rolling Stone, where he was generally accepting and effusive of the idea. He said he had no problem with Peter Jackson doing this. He had already done his film. He stood by his film. He still thinks it's a worthwhile film. And he still has a bit of a chip on his shoulder about Ringo Starr slagging off the original film for its focus on the rumored negativity and George Harrison's departing of the session and all of the Sturm und Drang that took place around that. So Peter Jackson gets into this archive. The original plan for everyone, the Beatles, Disney, Peter Jackson, was that they were going to make a two and a half hour theatrical film release. Well, Peter Jackson, being a Beatles fan, set himself a task, which was if as a Beatles fan, he thought I've got to include this in this documentary, he was going to include it regardless of what that meant to the running time. So his first assembly of the project was 18 hours long. Then 
he eventually whittled it back down to six. Now, at this point, the pandemic had occurred that scotched the original plans for the release. So he had to go to approach the Beatles first and say, hey, the two and a half hour version, listen, the rooftop concert itself is 45 minutes long. So that's 45 minutes of my two and a half hour running time. I've essentially got two to three minutes per day to tell the story of what went into all of the recording leading up to the rooftop concert. And that's just not enough time. I've estimated that I'm going to need 15 to 20 to 30 minutes, depending on the, the events of a given day per day. So I would like to do this as a six to eight hour documentary. And he describes in one interview I saw being extremely nervous as he awaited the Beatles word and verdict on that pitch. Luckily for him, it came back and they said, that sounds great. Once the Beatles sign off, of course, Disney is in place. The one other little tidbit I read is that he did have to sort of go back and forth with Disney a bunch to show smoking and some swearing, which didn't occur to me until after the fact. They do have a bunch of warning cards on the front of each episode, but it is probably by far the most adult thing that I would imagine appears on Disney because it does show an incredible amount of period-specific, incessant cigarette smoking. Oh, my God. So that's a bit of the backstory. As I said, the original film was directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg. Now, he is probably the most comical and japed about character in the subsequent social media conversation about Get Back. Rumored to be the illegitimate son of Orson Welles and looking every inch just that, he kind of swans around smoking cigars. I think he's 26 or 28 himself. He's not much older than the Beatles. He generally looks like a giant overfed baby playing grown up. He's got some terrible ideas. He seems completely out of touch and out of tune with what the Beatles actually need, which doesn't set him apart from really anyone else that's appearing in this or seems to be surrounding them. Other than George Martin, it doesn't seem like anyone really has their finger on what these guys actually need. And Michael Lindsay Hogg spends most of the film trying to goad them into recording a concert in a uh, architectural ruin in Libya, which is just a colossally terrible idea uh, to everyone except Michael Lindsay Hogg, who keeps pressing and pressing and pressing as the deadline approaches closer and closer. So that's the original director. Now, before we get into the success or not of Get Back as a project, let's talk a little bit about why the Beatles. You know, the Beatles to me have always been one of those topics like the universe where if I start thinking about it, if I start unpacking it, it just becomes so daunting, so mind-blowing that you almost have to stop because you can't really appreciate and understand the magnitude of the accomplishment because we're still relatively close to it. Some 50, 60 years away is not really enough for us to understand what really happened. And the Beatles and their story is one of those things that is so documented as to almost lose the essential truth that might be at the center. There are so many competing versions and visions, and there are so many books and movies and podcasts and what have you. And the, the comments themselves from surviving members really mostly from Paul McCartney at this point, who's really the lone voice that speaks the most about the relationships and about the band. You know, 
George Harrison has passed away. John Lennon has passed away. Yoko Ono has sort of removed herself from public life, I've read. Sean Ono Lennon is more the spokesperson for the Lennon family and estate, which I think is a good thing. I've read a lot of his recent comments and quotes on things, and they come from a very evolved, almost spiritual understanding. And he has a lot of forgiveness for everybody, including his father, including Paul, including all of the people that you know may have taken advantage of the band and its members over the years. So he's going to be an interesting presence going forward in Beetledom because I think he obviously you know has his own take on things, but he also seems to go out of his way to be diplomatically interesting about how he comments on things, which I think is necessary. So this Beatles phenomenon that we lived through is, was so seismic, so singular, even to this day, that the end of the band, you know, we're still too close to it in order to kind of really understand it, even though we've been trying. You know, people are interviewed for books or movies and their own memories can alter, right? They, they either become self-serving or they become excessively self-deprecating. They want to be careful not to maybe call it like they think it is because they get beaten up for that. So the truth is always very elusive. And complicated human dimensions, which are obviously at the center of the story of the Beatles, end up getting reduced to these thumbnail sketches and narratives end up taking hold like Yoko broke up the Beatles, which is completely reductive at best, and it's sexist and insulting at worst. You know, John Lennon bears a tremendous amount of responsibility for his own actions. It's not like this woman came into his life and completely took advantage of him, although there is a part of that that is true. If you read widely about the Beatles, you know, like any human relationship, it had a complicated dynamic at its center. You know, uh, well, let's talk about that for a second, because which, which, you, you, you know, Yoko, you've even been you've even been called the Dragon Lady, who um, yes, the, yes. the lady who brought the Beatles apart and or took them all. Apart. Took I them have trouble with English. Can so. we please give her the credit for all the nice music that George made and Ringo made and Paul made and I've made since they broke up? If she ble if she did it. It's true. And now, uh, it turned out all right, didn't it? You turned, yeah. Anyway, but you no, were aware of that. I mean, that the press no. saw, oh, always yes, saw yes. you as the, the wedge that was driven in. Uh, the, wedge. the Beatles are endlessly fascinating to us because it's like we had a Shakespeare or a Mozart amongst us, you know, someone from hundreds of years ago whose creative genius is kind of a settled matter and whose work has survived hundreds of years so that we can truly say, deservedly so, it's going to be part of our culture for millennia, human culture for millennia. Other geniuses like, you know, Miles Davis or Bob Marley, like similarly, still too recently amongst us for us to really grasp and understand. Time and distance is going to be required to get this, this object right-sized in the rearview mirror. In so many ways, the Beatles were the first group to achieve this sort of worldwide phenomena fame that's now not necessarily common, but it's understood enough where entire organizations of very professional and experienced people exist and are experienced in dealing with the levels of fame and personal and business complexities that the Beatles were kind of alone in dealing with at the time. 
So at their time, they didn't have that. You know, they didn't have an Irving Azoff who understood the music business and understood the part and the role of the band and how to manage interpersonal band conflicts over a period of decades and keep guys focused on, yes, the bottom line, but also the bottom line of how you need each other. And it's worth preserving because it's so rare that these things come together. You know, the Beatles were the first through the door. And as the John Henry character says in Moneyball, I know you're taking it in the teeth out there, but the first guy through the wall, he always gets bloody. Always. This is threatening, not just a way of doing business, but, it's, but in their minds, it's threatening the game. But it's really what it's threatening is their livelihood. It's threatening their jobs. It's threatening the way that they do things. And every time that happens, whether it's a government or a way of doing business or whatever it is, the people who are holding the reins have their hands on the switch. They go batshit crazy. Well, the Beatles got bloody. You know, they were only, what, 27, 28 years old when they broke up. And as I said, that body of work is going to last a millennia. But they weren't fully formed adults. And more than that, they didn't grow up with the tools to navigate this hysteria and this complexity and these riches. Who would? But particularly, you know, working class, middle class British men of their era. It's not like they, you know, were in touch with communicating their feelings to each other. And a lot's been made about these sessions that, like, they were at each other's throats. Well, in a very British sense. I mean, my God, no one really says exactly what they're thinking or feeling. It's kind of funny that that's the perception when the reality is you have four lads being fairly awkward around each other with a lot being unsaid under the surface. So the Beatles didn't have this circle around them skilled enough and firm enough to protect them from the predatory recording business industry and the predatory interests of fans and hangers-on and from themselves. You know, when Brian Epstein died, they were left fairly rudderless without a captain. And I think that's what really would have benefited them more than anything else is another authority figure that they could have trusted. But again, I'm not sure they would have trusted anyone coming into the mix at that time because there had been such a litany of abuse that had taken place with their finances and with their contracts so it's very hard to think about who could have come in and done this. They certainly looked and they tried. You know, they had access to all the captains and all the barons of British industry. But this was a very specific and singular undertaking. And almost by the time that we're seeing the Beatles here in the get back uh, sessions, the let it be sessions, it's really almost too late. You know, the flaws and the fractures are too deep. So at the time they were doing the Let It Be sessions, the Beatles were kind of in a where do we go from here moment. And there really wasn't a clear answer to that question. At the time, there wasn't a clear answer to the question. I actually think now there is a clear answer to that question because so many other bands have come subsequent to the Beatles that have experienced similar things. So we now know there is a pathway. You know, take some time, record your solo work, Express yourselves individually. Continue to grow up. Spend time with your families. Get your Beatles business affairs in order. Get your record contracts in order. Fundamentally understand that you're all stronger together than apart and just figure out how to make it work. Attract and sign the very best industry people to advise you to manage your money. And also, split the songwriting four ways. Doesn't matter who did what. 
Like U2 has famously done this for their entire career. And how many years have the same four guys navigated global fame and stardom and critical importance uh, as U2? I can't think of another band that's been together with the original members for as long. And what part of that do you think is the very early on decision that songwriting would be split equally four ways regardless? I think it removes, it doesn't totally remove it because obviously everyone's going to still be aware who is or isn't contributing to the writing of songs. But I believe fundamentally as a band, you don't really have a choice. If you want to be a singer-songwriter, go be a singer-songwriter. But if you want to be in a band, then I think you have to put part of that on the shelf and you have to say, all for one, one for all. The songwriting credits today, still, you can hear McCartney carp about this. You know, he's tried to change some of the credits from reading Lennon to McCartney to McCartney-Lennon. I mean, this goes to show you it doesn't matter, you know, how much money you have. It doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter how important you are or others think you are. If you have that chip on the shoulder, it's there regardless, right? No amount of billions of dollars is going to stop Paul McCartney continuing to put forth this need that he seems to still have for credit when he's fucking Paul McCartney. So that's some of the context and the background that you get here. Now, speaking to that, watching this Get Back series, you know, just the name written, written by Lennon McCartney feels completely reductive and inappropriate. I mean, I know that what we're seeing in Get Back is a completely different way of working for the group than they're used to working. You know, they're writing the songs actively in the studio. So each guy's bringing in maybe a snippet of an idea, and then they're all kind of collectively working them out over the period of this month. So it's a collective collaborative effort. And by the way, George, that doesn't always mean everything is equal and harmonious. So fight, stand up for yourself. Don't just walk out. I know, easier said than done. And there's a funny moment where... Um, where, where, where their producer, you know, says, listen, you know, you try being a songwriter in a band with Paul McCartney and John Lennon for seven or eight years and see how you feel. Like he kind of understands. And Paul and John understand how it's been for George and that they haven't taken George entirely seriously. But there are moments throughout this, particularly the first two episodes is where I really felt it the most. And I think in episode two, the most Man, the bond, the musical bond between Lennon and McCartney is almost as much of an enclosed bubble that you're not welcome to as John and Yoko sitting on the floor are in these sessions, right? It's, there's something about the way they look at each other when they're performing music and the shorthand that they have, the one or two words that they use, the respect that they clearly have. It is a, it is a bond, like a, a bond from another place. That, that brings these two together. And George is part of that too. These harmonies are insane. Listening to them harmonize, it creates a third voice, the three of them singing together. And when you add Ringo to that, who is so on point all through this series with his drumming, it's an unbeatable combination. And you know, as I said, this, this album was getting away from the studio trickery of Sgt. Pepper's and the White Album. And when they're playing rock and roll, it's fantastic. And when they're playing live on the roof, it is fantastic. Sweet Loretta Martin thought she was a woman, but she was another man. 
really tight. I'm going to speak a little bit more about the live experience and the Beatles a bit later in the episode. You know, it reminded me a little bit of my previous episode about Star Trek because in Star Trek, you also have some essential contributors or stars around whom a galaxy inevitably orders, right? You have, you have Kirk, Spock, Bones. I would add Scotty to that, but you could either add Scotty or take him away. But let's just agree that if I ask you to name the three primary or the primary characters on Star Trek, you're going to say in this order, Kirk, Spock, and Bones, right? Now, with the Beatles, let's do an experiment. In your mind, just say the name of the four Beatles right now. I guarantee you, you just said, either aloud or to yourself, the names in this order, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And isn't it fascinating to think about why that is? <laughs> like, were we just fed that from an early age? Uh, or is it some sort of a hierarchical order that does make some kind of sense from the origins of the Beatles on? You know, is that part of the, the root of Paul McCartney's chip? Is that as the cute one, he was in second position to John, the, the slyly, snarky, cynical, intelligent one? And is that what he's been trying to prove ever since? And has proved, basically. I mean, the guy has the melodic gifts of another dimension. It's, it's on display in this series. So I think it's fascinating that we do think of the names John, Paul, George, and Ringo in that order, quote unquote, although clearly, as I just said, you, you can't have any of this without Ringo. He's the greatest 4-4 drummer who ever lived. He has an unmistakable feel and pocket. When you hear him, you know it's him. That is the sign of a great instrumentalist, regardless of the instrument you're playing. So you cannot have the Beatles without Ringo, period. Okay? You cannot have the Beatles without George. Again, his musical contributions, his harmonies, it's, they, you need all four of these guys, but there's a pecking order, there's a, there's a creative order, and that's both true and in the way. And I think that's what they're wrestling with. To the extent that it's in the way, it's these are the individual kind of cells or prisons they, they could feel in and that they kind of occupied and rebelled against at various times. So how did they rebel? Well, for McCartney, throughout the, the, the series, it's this kind of alternately stepping up to and shrugging off the mantle of leadership, of decisiveness, of being the motivatory force here. And you can feel his pain because the other three are alternately disengaged, disinterested, complaining, tired of hearing his shit. It's a combination of all the above. But no one else is going to do it unless he does it. And this is an essential truism of all bands. I don't know who said all bands require a dictator, but it's absolutely true. It's not a democracy. It never has been. For John, during this time that we're talking about, in the Get Back film, his rebellion from the Beatles was twofold. It's Yoko Ono, as you can see in the film, although I think the way Peter Jackson treats that is very interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the other thing that's unspoken in the film, but if you read any of the books that I've mentioned, or really any substantive, uh, well-sourced biography of the Beatles, it will include in their own words. So this is not a writer saying this, but in Paul's words, in John's words, in Yoko's words, 
they're very open and honest about the fact that for about five years, starting with this time that's represented in the series, that John and Yoko developed a heroin problem. And that heroin problem either continued, if you believe Albert Goldman, really up through uh, Lennon's death and included some very, very dark chapters in the Dakota prior to his death, or it was sort of a five-year period around here at the end of which, uh, you know, they got clean. And John writes cold turkey, et cetera, et cetera. 36 I think it's pretty clear watching this that I can, I can see and feel that going on with John and Yoko. I think it's visible. I think that they act a bit like moody teenagers sitting on the floor in their own little world. There's a bubble around them. You're just not allowed in. You're not cool enough. They're not taking things seriously. There's a lot of whisper to sides. Uh, however, it's not as weird as I first thought and as I think pop culture thinks that Yoko is there. Is it weird? Yes. But at the same time, I get the sense through the Peter Jackson's handling of this material that I had a sensitivity to John. I had a sensitivity that, you know what? This is what he needed at this time. Now, the drug addiction, the issues there, uh, you know, that's also a part of this. So I'm not completely excusing it and saying it's, it's not weird because it clearly is weird. Like all the other members have visitors in the studio at various times and they're sometimes present or seated next to the respective beetle. But I mean, Yoko's pretty much there all day, every day. And yet it's John's sensitivity that I connected with and felt. And I understood that however flawed it might be, her continued presence was what he needed in order to be present and do this work. And so for that, I had much more sympathy watching this this time than I think popular culture gives. So yes, there are the scenes of her shrieking and singing, but this is very much a, a route that John and Yoko were going down during this time. And he was committed to see that through and it's part and parcel of who he is. And so you don't really hear anybody talking about it in this documentary. None of the other Beatles comment on her or even really address her or deal with her in any way. So in that sense, it's a little odd because she's there, but no one's sort of acknowledging that she's there. And I think that goes back to what I was saying before about this British middle class working class kind of sensibility that maybe we just don't talk about complicated, difficult things, even if they're literally seated here, seated here in our midst. You know, for George, the rebellion, as I said, was kind of finding the courage to finally channel his anger at being an incredibly talented songwriter in a band that contained the two most iconic and important pop songwriters in musical history. For Ringo, again, reading the source material, I think it's pretty clear it was alcohol. He's pretty hungover throughout the majority of this film. But when he does say something, it's almost always on point. 
and he's putting his finger on exactly what the others can't seem to come out and say, or he's bringing in a perfectly formed little nugget like Octopus's Garden, which continues to delight any child that you play it for knowing nothing about the Beatles to this day. There's a great moment with him and George where George is giving him a little of what George was never given, which is kind of songwriting help. It's a great moment in, I think, episode three. Just, I mean, something to get back to where we started. So the film doesn't either doesn't address, like in the case of Lennon's heroin use, or very glancingly addresses kind of fundamental things in Beatle lore. Alan Klein, the arrival of Alan Klein, a manager, an empresario who inserted himself and took over and became the manager of the Beatles, and in doing so, kind of ensured the destruction of the Beatles at the same time in this Shakespearean tragedy. He's hinted at, you know, you hear Lennon sort of embarrassingly, effusively gushing over this shark in their midst. And gradually the shark swam in and took over. Uh, But the film doesn't really get into that. And I think for a certain type of very avid and informed Beatles fan, they're going to be completely fine with that. Because the bones have been picked over so many times. The negativity has been discussed so many times. And I think that type of avid and informed fan will approach this with an insistence that it's all about what it's only ever been about, which is the songs. I think that type of fan is going to enjoy this documentary the most because that's all they want to see. They don't care about all the other ancillary surrounding drama. Now, for better or worse, I'm the type of fan who wants both. Okay, I want the songs. I want to appreciate and bask in the magnificence and majesty of the pop songwriting and the voices and the seemingly effortless genius. Although, to my earlier point, I think one of the most important things about this film is it debunks a lot of what we think or a lot of what we're told about creation and creativity. And it shows that even for the Beatles, it's a lot of fucking hard work. Okay, it's a lot of dead ends. It's a lot of days of not figuring out how this damn chorus is supposed to resolve back to the verse and vice versa. And this is what this documentary shows so brilliantly, I think, is the hard work. You know, the nugget may, f- may spring fully formed into your mind, but the work of hammering that into a song or a film or a book or a screenplay or a movie, that's a whole different story. And I think that's one of the great things about this, this new series. But if you're a fan like me, you know, someone who does want all the context, I want the frayed nerves and the fear and the repressed anger and the messy creation, as well as the songs. I think the film is still essential, but it's a little less engaging because it doesn't get into some of the stuff that was going on. And that stuff is actually extremely material to what we're watching. 
And I think that's where there's a bit of a disconnect for me with the film. I found myself, particularly in episode one, which I don't often do, kind of wishing for more narrative kind of handholding, more context, because I was aware of it off screen. And I thought my awareness of it off screen informed what was going on on screen. But even when I hear myself say that, I think, well, if I have that awareness off screen in my head and I'm watching it on screen, then Peter Jackson doesn't need to do that for me. I'm doing it for myself. So I'm unresolved about that. And that's not kind of what this project was set out to become. You know, I think what he's setting out to do is to take the extant materials and really let us see for the first time more complexity, more nuance, more narrative arc than the original film could have. And he has succeeded in that, absolutely, uh, and without question. The other thing that's present, these harmonies. Oh, my God. These three voices, incredible. When they come together and it creates this third voice, there's nothing like that. And when you're listening to these songs that, like I said, born as I was in 1969, to me, these songs have just always existed fully formed. And I never really stopped to think about their creation other than, you know, reading books about what was going on in the band at any given time. But when you're watching the creation of Long and Winding Road or Don't Let Me Down or any of the songs featured in this new six-hour documentary series, <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, just take Don't Let Me Down. What an amazing and deeply weird, in a good way, love song that is. This is a song only John Lennon could pull off. It's not, you know a song with a sweetly sung chorus. It's not James Taylor. Like the chorus is howled at us in this wounded Lennon emotional wail. It's like a curdled scream. And it's both a demand and a total acceptance of the eventual futile failure of opening himself up to love. Don't let me When he, when he screams, don't let me down, he's really screaming, you're going to let me down. He's really screaming, I'm going to let myself down. There's a self-awareness under there that I don't think he was capable of expressing overtly, but he was capable of expressing in the songs. And this is why Lennon's best songs contain this fear or anger, this warning, this reproach. Even as he's espousing peace, love, and happiness, He's got pain and he's mining it for the songs. And when you hear him perform Don't Let Me Down, as many times as you hear in the series, it never loses its power for me. You know, it's this slinky groove that is just almost masking this menace and this danger and this self-awareness that's just lurking underneath. It's very heady, very chilling stuff. It's also apparent that the apparatus around the Beatles, while necessary, in that, yes, I guess you need some blokes to move the equipment and write down lyrics as you come up with them and protect your PR needs and fetch you ciggies and tea and sandwich. You know, less do you need the buzzy, busy bee of Michael Lindsay Hogg flitting about with his terrible ideas. But 
it's kind of apparent in the film that this apparatus, these hangers-on, this, this didn't help the interpersonal relationships of the Beatles, and nor does it feel like it really allowed them to be themselves in these moments of artistic vulnerability in a way that maybe they needed, you know? Even the shots where they're kind of sitting around between studio performances, it feels performative and uncomfortable and awkward. Like I almost had to leave the room when Peter Sellers came in for this really stilted, awkward kind of meeting with the Beatles. It was just really weird. Uh, you know, I just wonder, wouldn't they have just been easier and better to get in the studio alone with George Martin and just have the four of them and no one else? It was impossible for them at this point. I get that. But you can't help but wonder if you could have just gotten rid of all of the people nattering in their ears, you know, from significant others to recording engineers to George Martin to whomever it was. Just like if the idea is like the four of us in a room the way it used to be, then just do that. But they didn't either have the discipline or the ability to just pare the operation down at that point. You know, and like I said, the MacGuffin of here's this arbitrary 30-day period at the end of which we have to perform a live concert and we have to write an entire album. Like, they put that on themselves or Paul put that on them, but that's not a real thing. Like, they're the Beatles. They could do whatever the fuck they want. It's their own studio. So, you know, all the wheres and the whys of like, yes, the equipment was borrowed from EMI and had to be back and Glenn Johns was going to do a session. So, okay, whatever. But like, let's be real here. If the Beatles wanted to spend six months in the studio, they can spend six months in the studio. Believe me, they wasted a lot more money on a lot of other things that never came to fruition. So I wanted to talk a little bit about something that came up on Instagram. I had posted a little bit the very first uh, episode about kind of an untrustworthiness that I felt in some of the editorial choices that Peter Jackson had made. Some of this was kind of the use at times, which you know I understand better having looked more into the making of the film, but given the fact that there was way more audio recorded than, than video recorded of that specific audio, there are many conversational moments that are covered with footage that is obviously not from the conversation being presented. And while kind of visually I understand the need for this, to me it really took me out of the narrative because I was aware of it. And this might just be something that I'm aware of, you know, having done this type of thing as a TV producer over the years myself. So, you know, I'm kind of aware of when they're using the B-roll to cover uh, the voiceover and what's going on. But I found it kind of distracting, more so because it induced in me a disbelief in the narrative, right? Like, how can I trust that this is really what was said if I can't see them saying it? And I could also felt like I could hear these audio edits where sentences are stitched together. And again, this, this may be just what, this is what we do for a living here at work. So, you know, it could be that I'm a little bit more aware of that than the average viewer, but I was aware of it and it took me out of it and it made me question what I was being presented. Uh, and then my friend posted a response on Instagram saying that the, he had watched the credits and there was a machine learning credit in looking into it and then watching a couple videos of Peter Jackson talking about it. I understood that the original Nagra audio tapes uh, were just mono tapes. So if two people are having a conversation and someone is bashing away on a set of drums behind that conversation, there was no way to separate those three things and be able to mix them for clarity or edit the conversation for clarity in a way that wasn't jarring. And the technology 
exists now to do what's called machine learning, where you could feed that tape into a computer and the computer can analyze what's going on on the piece of tape and create separation where there was none. And this allowed Peter Jackson to separate the voices, separate the instruments. So if Paul and John were having a conversation and Ringo's bashing away on the drums, he can just remove the drums. And you're kind of left with the conversation and the computer can fill in parts that are missing, which is what I think gives it a little bit of that weird computer feel. It's kind of, your brain kind of notices it even if you don't really notice it. Uh, this was also an issue in the Bourdain documentary where I think they created fully formed you know, quotes from Bourdain that he never said and used them in the film in his voice. I noticed this in episode one and Zeke's post caused me to look a little bit further into it. And, you know, for example, there's a moment where Ringo is playing Octopus's Garden, as I mentioned, and George is the only other Beatle in the studio. And he's sitting there with Mal Evans, who's kind of their gopher, uh, and he's doing something else. And then there's this intense look of concentration that is used when George hears Ringo play Octopus's Garden for the first time. And we know it's the first time because we see and hear Ringo say something like, did I play you the octopus one? And George says no. But then there's this intense shot used of George looking at Ringo. And the shot is clearly saying, wow, he understands this is something. You know, maybe Ringo thinks it's just a throwaway funny thing, but George clearly understands something. Can I trust that moment? I don't know because the conversation isn't from that moment. So that's an example that kind of brought up for me some of this stuff. There's another section where John is telling George about John's meeting with Alan Klein. The rest of the Beatles hadn't yet met Alan Klein. And close eyes can tell you that the visuals are not really from the same conversation as the audio is. But the visuals that are used are giving the impression that George and Ringo are disinterested, maybe even distrustful of what Lennon is saying because Lenin sounds like an eternal, you know, enthusiast falling for the most recent charlatan to convince him that, you know, he is the secret to all of Lenin's problems. So with the visual choices made, can I trust that the narrative presented is accurate? It's not something we really are going to know. So the point I have is in a documentary, that look that George gives Ringo, and then the effortless way he comes over on the guitar and shows Ringo how the tune should get back to the verse is an incredible moment. It's, it's a moment where something we, we've always known, this simple song, we feel we're present for this creation moment. But are we? That's what I don't know. The machine learning device causes us or causes me to wonder kind of exactly what is and what isn't. And I guess the only way around that would be just to listen to all 150 hours of the audio tape unedited and figure out some other thing that you could do. I wonder if it wouldn't have been better to, to not try to fake conversational moments they didn't have coverage for and instead choose another device. You know, you could have used still photos. Uh, you could have done something that indicated that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's more distracting or less, but it certainly would feel less manipulated. And I guess that's the thing that I was kind of coming away with. So Peter Jackson says, for all the ability that the existing machine learning systems had, it didn't have the ability to do what they needed, which was this type of high level separation of four voices and even the Beatles kind of trying to not be heard by playing instruments over conversations they didn't want Lindsay Hogg's cameras and audio microphones to catch. The real, the really good thing is that 
they're often having conversations with each other and you know our story of the sessions is told through obviously through the conversation i mean the songs isn't going to tell the story that's that's nice but the ups and downs and the things that go wrong and how they deal with it is all obviously you learn about that through their own conversations from 1969 so a lot of that talking was tend to be drowned out by and i think deliberately i think the beatles were aware that michael lindsay hogg was recording all this stuff and that sort of started to irritate them and they put countermeasures in place. So when they were going to have a talk, John or, or George would wind up their amp and one of them would just be strumming the guitar, just, just aimlessly. No, and so Michael wasn't going to get there. They, they sort of, they were fighting this battle and then Michael started to hide mics everywhere. Um, and so it was, this, it was this weird sort of battle going on between them. But anyway, there's all this audio that is, you know, all the dialogue is, has guitars all over it. But of course, machine learning, we take the guitars away and now we can hear the, hear what they're talking about. So that was a huge breakthrough because ultimately this is a story and I wanted them, I wanted to listen to what they were talking about and follow the story. And so we were suddenly cleaned up all this dialogue and it was a huge breakthrough for us to be able to, to let them tell, tell their own story through this time. Now, going back to the issue of songwriting credits, in these specific sessions, I could make a very good argument that pretty much every song should be credited to all four Beatles and Billy Preston, because when Billy Preston comes into the mix here, it gels, it solidifies, and he adds an essential thing that was not present prior to his arrival. But, you know, Billy Preston's arrival is another moment where I'm more aware that there is a fascinating and tragic life story that just goes totally unremarked upon in Get Back. And again, much of what's kind of tragic and fascinating about Billy Preston's life took place after this. So I understand that we don't need to stop down and spend, you know, the hour or more that it would take at least to cover this very complicated, brilliant, talented, self-destructive, closeted, sexually abused survivor and alleged perpetrator, by the way, later in life. He spiraled out of control and was in and out of jails and rehabs, had drug problems, alcohol problems. You can read all about the full sad tale of Billy Preston if you're curious. It's not really the place for it here or in the documentary, and I get that, because the Billy Preston that we're presented with here is a beaming, incredibly joyful presence, and he immeasurably helps the situation in the studio and on the rooftop. It's great. You're giving us a lift, Bill. Oh, right. We've been doing this for days now. Yeah. Weeks. No, just choking. Yeah. Really, voice is choking. I just wish yeah. I had yesterday's voice for today's backing. Don't let me down. You know, another interesting thing is over the course, you know, some people like leftsets and other kind of music business pundits have said, you know, it's boring. This series is boring. Nothing happens. Even as they sort of praise the fundamental masterclass in songwriting that it does present. But I think 
they're feeling that lack of narrative handholding I was talking about before. But one of the things I did find myself having, which I never had before, you know, when you listen to someone talk a lot, you can understand kind of a little bit about how their mind works, connections that they might make. Almost to the point where someone is very well known and has talked for quite a while, you can understand almost what they're going to say next or how they might say it or what they might think about a given topic. And clearly with fully formed personalities like Lennon and McCartney, you know, and to a lesser extent, George and Ringo, just because they take less center stage in anything that's going on around the Beatles, they're kind of dwarfed by, by Paul and John. But in episode three, there's this great scene where George and John are kind of formatively running through something in the way she moves. And George kind of hums this, that descending bit after the verse. And based on like everything we've seen before, I kind of recognize this is exactly how his musical mind works. You know, it's like reminiscent of that, that Ringo octopus garden moment that he also had. And that's, what's kind of amazing about this series is you're getting to see how they approach musical problems and how they try to solve them. And they fail a lot. Like there's a lot of chords where you're like, that's not the chord I know, but they just haven't found that right chord yet. And I found that fascinating to kind of feel like I was learning mostly George, like Paul's sense for melody is so otherworldly that he is fumbling here and there for just the right kind of chord that when it falls in place, you're like, oh my God, that's, you know, <laughs> the long and winding road or whatever it is, is the working on. But with George, I really felt like I kind of came to understand how his musical mind worked in a way. And the thing about the creativity is I think it's so important that this thing kind of debunks an idea of creativity, that there's this thunderbolt moment where fully formed things are brought forth and that's it. When really, you know, aside from the otherworldly talent, the only real separation between you and the Beatles is they're willing to pursue these things to the end to get exactly the right bit for the right moment. And it's the same with writing or same with anything else. Of course, there's their preternatural talent, but you know, it just happened to them like it could just happen to you. And they're just doing the best they can within the constructs of that. So if you, if you watch this, you're going to feel that sense, I think, of, of work, uh, which is great. I think that's an important and, and, and underserved part of the creative process. And there's a lot of time spent on weird musical and comedic tangents. And this is just part and parcel of like sitting around in a studio all day with your friends. I mean, if you've if you've ever played music with your friends, probably 70% of the time you're not playing music with your friends. You're doing silly things because that's just what happens. And then the other 30 or 40 or 50% of the time, you're actually playing music. Okay, the other thing we have to remark upon is the clothes. The clothes are amazing. This is by far the best era of Beatle fashion. Each of them has an amazing and fantastic look. I mean... There are suits worn by George and by Ringo that are just phenomenal. Paul kind of has this great working man's kind of outfit of, of, a, of a suit vest and trousers and usually a T-shirt or a, or a button-down shirt underneath it. Lennon's just Lennon. I couldn't even tell you really what he's wearing. He's not really wearing anything as ostentatious as the others, uh, but he does have this fantastic kind of rainbow-striped shirt, and he's, I think, wearing some... He's wearing a little bit of a white suit a couple of times, 
but the clothes are amazing. Someone must be doing like an Instagram account solely for the outfits and also the iconic instruments. So beetle nerds, instrument nerds, there's so much here that we just want to stare at. Paul's Hofner bass, his weird bass strings, the Rosewood Telecaster that was a prototype for George Harrison, John's Epiphone guitar, uh, all of these things are so iconic to Beatle nerds. Ringo's drums, Ringo's tea towels. I mean, I can't wait to get to my house and put tea towels on my snare and my floor tom to get that dry 70s Ringo sound. I will never again play without that <laughs> because his drum sound is phenomenal. So to wrap this up, I wanted to talk about what I found most thrilling, most moving, and in a way, most sad about this film. And that's, as the film ends, you have this incredible stumbled upon idea for the rooftop performance at the top of their own building, which is so such an obvious idea that it never occurred to anyone until they had exhausted a entire litany of terrible other ideas, you know, including going to Libya, performing at a children's hospital, but not too sick, as Michael Lindsay Hogg says, bizarrely. Um, all of these different ideas. I read a couple things in one of the books that, you know, it was actually Ringo who suggested that the roof was pretty, pretty fantastic. And then Michael Lindsay Hogg said, well, we should go take a look at it. I can't really remember exactly how they presented in the film about whose idea it was, but it's iconic, right? It's iconic. And it's so simple that it's weird that it's iconic. I couldn't help but feeling after watching this incredible 45 minute sequence of the Beatles playing music live together in public, in quotes, even though we've seen them in the studio playing these same songs all together. But it's the act of performance, right? Here we are, even at the top of our building in an unpublicized event, which of course slowly attracts an amazing crowd who receive word pre-cell phone text message that the Beatles are playing live. You better get your ass down here. It's the act of performance that's the magic. And that's what kind of made me sad, even as I was enthralled by watching this incredible, dynamic, locked-in band play live, like incredible band. And I couldn't help but feeling that perhaps if the Beatles had found a way after 1966 to, to re-enter a normal life of performing live, that many of their troubles, or at least some of them, may have receded in the background because after that tour in 1966 where they just said, we can't do this anymore. Like we can't even hear ourselves play. The screaming is too loud. It was the height of Beatlemania. Well, things were different in 69, 70 and on, right? Like there was more of an apparatus to support live performance, even at the magnitude of the Beatles that I think they could have availed themselves of. And I can't help but feel watching them play live that my God, they, they, they took that off the table. Like they took the one thing, the one reason to do all of this is to play live with your friends, like playing music live for other people. That's the hit, that's the connection. And as incredible as it is to watch them play, it's watching them after when they're in the control room, listening back to it, 
that's the happiest they seem. That's the most engaged they seem. Not, play, not even playing it. It's listening to it afterwards and talking about it. They're kind of, they're high from it. And that's the feeling that's missing from almost all of the Beatles sessions that lead up to it. And I just think, God, is it just as simple that they'd really rob themselves of the one pure fun aspect of being in a band, which is playing your music live for your adoring fans. Like, it's just, it's hard not to watch that and, and wonder, you know, if you don't do that, then what do you have? You just have all the business and the hassles, the annoyances, the, all that stuff with none of the rewards except fame and money. And, and those, as you can see, are, are, that's not enough. So seeing them finally play live after six hours, watching them look at each other and palpably having fun, it, it's sad that all that happened really too late to make a difference because as great as it obviously was for them, it, it had just been too many years and too much strain for one performance to stave off the inevitable. And indeed, you know, within months, this thing is broken up. It's an irretrievably broken. You know, Lennon is done. But that's what I wished for the Beatles in watching this series. I wished they could have found their way into the right manager after Brian Epstein died. I wish they could have found a way to allow them to have the fun of playing that rock and roll music together. Because when all is said and done, that's what it's about. And the songs are so good. And this series is so good, even for all of the things that may be lacking in any given aspect of it. So if you've enjoyed it, I think it's something we're going to be probably revisiting again, because I think it will grow with time to become more important than it kind of feels at the moment, this document of this time. And I'm curious to kind of see how it evolves, like all Beatles things evolve. Something comes out, some nuance and some context is added. And at the end of the day, you end up with a little bit more nuanced understanding of something incredibly beautiful, complicated, dark, mysterious, and unknown. Once there was a way to get back homeward. Once there was a way to get back home, sleep pretty darling, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby. I will sing a lullaby.